Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, March 12th, 2010. This week, episode 159 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Joe, it's good to be here. Good day, Cliff. Back in our chairs again. Two weeks in a row. Absolutely. All right. We also have environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Hey, y'all. Good day, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Jim White of System Science Consulting and formerly with the Canada Housing Mortgage Corporation. Looking forward to a great show with Jim. We'll have our halftime, IE Connections, What's News segment with Glenn Fellman, and then we'll go to the roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the website every week after the show. Check it out at www iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank those sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. You can also download the show by going to our website, iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get them downloaded directly from iTunes. Don't forget we have those ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC continuing education credits, or ACAC renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, and our email addresses are also on the homepage of the website. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations to John Lapotier. 
of MicroShield Environmental Services in Florida for identifying Lennox as the firm that created and introduced the forced air furnace for residential heating in 1935. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly identify the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, March 12th, 2010. Name the North American International Airport that played an integral role in world aviation in the immediate hours following the September 11, 2001 attacks, when due to the closure of North America's airspace, 39 transatlantic flights bound for the United States were ordered to land there. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Jim H. White of System Science Consulting. He is one of the first indoor air quality and mold problem investigators in Canada that was recognized by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the Canadian Federal Housing Agency, as qualified to perform these services in housing. Mr. White joined Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation back in 1981 as the manager of the engineering research while, and, uh, while at CH, or CMHC, I'll get that right, Mr. White was responsible for research and publication development on mold uh, and health issues, indoor air quality, housing for environmentally hypersensitive people, energy efficiency, and much more. The, the website's just a, a great resource, and we'll talk more about that and put a link up on the IAQ radio site when we're done. Jim is, has an engineering and physics degree from the University of Toronto, and he also worked for the Manned Space Program prior to joining CMHC. Welcome, Jim. We've got some intro music before we pull you on the line. Jim, do we have you on the line? Yeah, that was great. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I really you're, appreciate that, Joe. You're, you're quite welcome. It's great to have uh, one of our American neighbors to the north. You corrected me yesterday. You are an American, but you're uh, we're the U.S. Americans, I guess. Yes, and we're the Canadian Americans. All yeah. right. Well, it's great to have you on here, Jim. We've looked forward to this, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, the first question I had for you is, why did you leave the manned space program and join the Canadian, um, or, sorry, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation? I'll get that right. Yeah, it uh, was an interesting decision on my behalf. Um, I was supposed to go on and uh, work on the manipulator arm for the space station, but uh, CMHC convinced me that there were some really interesting science and engineering challenges in housing. Uh, I had actually done consulting work for them in one of, with one of the companies that I had worked with. And uh, um, 
I believed them, and as a matter of fact, it uh, proved true. I, I thought I would never run out of questions worth getting answers to if I went to CMHC and looked at health and housing, and uh, I never did. Well, can you explain for our listeners a little bit about, you know, what is the CHMC? Or, yeah, it CMHC, sounds like a company, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, it's actually a Crown Corporation of the Canadian federal government, and Crown Corporations report to a minister, and they're given a mandate, uh, a budget, and uh, they're supposed to actually get things done. And uh, one of the many sort of uh, uh, aims of CMHC is to provide better housing for Canadians. Now, as a... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, CMHC actually is a, a little bit like Fannie Mae and, Mae and HUD and a whole bunch of other uh, small organizations that you don't have. It actually really has a rather large um, series of, of uh, mandates. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting place to look for. And you were there for almost 20 years? Yes, almost. I joined in 1981, and I took uh, retirement at the end of 98. And since then, you've been in a private consulting uh, practice? Yeah, I have my own little uh, company where I do a number of things, uh, some energy efficiency and performance of ventilation systems research, uh, where I get the occasional contract, and, uh, and I also investigate houses that make people sick. Well, Jim, Jim uh, what is White's first law? Oh, yeah, <laughs> having worked for a government agency, the primary purpose of any bureaucrat is to prevent anything getting done <laughs> because you can't be blamed for it going wrong if you never let it happen in the first place. <laughs> I assume. Now, does the um, CMHC, I'll get that right yet, Jim, does them that organization being a crown corporation as you described um does it give them a little more i don't know flexibility a little less um i guess uh direction from the you know the political powers do they have a little more independence in reality yes uh, they have a some very specifically stated mandates that the minister responsible for cmhc and a few other crown corporations um, gives them, but uh, then they're given a fair degree of freedom on how to go ahead and do the research, uh, in, say, in the research part of their mandate, and uh, to publish it. Uh, CMHC's got the best housing library in the world called CHIC, the Canadian Housing Information Center, which is available off CMHC's website as well. But... Um, uh, they really do have a fair bit of flexibility on how they get things done. And the Auditor General for the Canadian federal government has evaluated CMHC many times and found them to be the most cost-effective uh, of the agencies in actually getting their mandate done. Jim, I know that you have this interest in, in water damage and in mold and so on and so forth. Was this a personal interest that you had, or was this an interest that the organization, you know, that CMHC asked you to 
get involved with? No, it, it, it wasn't something I was really aware uh, of when I joined CMHC, but uh, almost immediately as I went through the list of research projects that were underway, I realized that uh, again and again, uh, wet houses, damp houses, sick people, uh, complaints uh, about uh, the fact that they weren't getting good advice uh, were endemic. So basically... Um, a majority of our funding pretty soon got into uh, wet houses and, and health. Now, how early on did you start that wet houses and health type of research? Um, well, I joined in March of 1981, and by um, September sort of time in 81, we were um doing a study on uh, housing for the environmentally hypersensitive and uh, had a quote out for uh, a study of just what sort of impact uh, there was of wet housing on health, although it was just a first step uh, at it. And th so you actually started looking at the housing for hypersensitive. So that was on the radar screen in Canada back in the, I guess, in the late 70s since you started it in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, there were, there were concerns. People were noticing that some occupants seemed to be overreacting to uh, buildings or housing that, that the ordinary person weren't reacting to. And we thought, well, you know, maybe the hypersensitive are a way for us to get um, a look-see at how um, we were going to have to formulate our whole research program. So, so we went and um, looked at these problems first, and, and yes, they, it really did help us understand some of the areas that were important, and also to find that there was so much that we didn't know about why houses could possibly make people sick. Jim, in your work with CHMC, um, did you find that your hands were tied in, in regards to opinions? Like if you felt strongly about something, did you have to go through some sort of consensus process or you know, bureaucratic review of, you know, that kind of influenced what you said? Or did you have the freedom to you know, kind of you know, follow your heart and, and your mind? Uh, initially, for the first 10 years or so, we had a tremendous amount of freedom on what we did. It was only when we started to find out um, which sorts of things about how we were building houses uh, were likely responsible for keeping uh, people getting ill, the occupants getting ill. Um, and then the industry association started to um, pick up... Uh, their interest in what we were doing, and it became a more political process from then on. Mm -hmm. Jim, I'm, I'm curious about the, the Wallaceburg study. I, I went on the website last night, and in fact, I was up uh, quite a bit <laughs> trying to f find some things in there. I did not find that study. I, I did find the other um, document you talked about, the About Your Home series. But when did Wallaceburg occur? Was that early on, or was that later in your time at CMHC? Uh, it was a bit later. We actually had uh, a research 
a project, a major research project uh, uh, coming uh, due, and, and we started to get reports in on it in 1991. Um, yeah, it, the uh, first report was called uh, Moldy Houses, Why They Are and Why We Care. And then um, shortly, about six months, nine months after that, uh, another one called uh, Additional Analysis of the Wallaceburg Data came out, and um, I started to do some, some work on, on the moisture source strength of houses. But uh, th that project was really rather huge. It was the first uh, field research study anywhere in the world, and it was fairly large. We er originally looked at 400 houses, and from that, chose uh, 40 pretty bad ones and 20, 20 houses that were uh, the least mold troubled and went back to them into the field with this big study um, to try and find out if there was a connection between um, mold and its, uh, and its ability to get into the uh, air and into people's bodies and health and found... Uh, even though we thought the study was too small, we, we found a, a statistically significant uh, result that, yes, uh, at least for the children that we had actual, even physical blood typing, um, looking at antibodies, et cetera, response, that it was very, very statistically significant that the moldiest houses um, had dramatically more uh, impact on children's health than the uh, than the least moldy houses. And I don't know if you mentioned, I, I, where is Wallaceburgs, for those uh, listeners that aren't familiar with that area? It's in southwestern uh, Ontario, just across from Detroit. So uh, actually, we thought that we would get a great deal of interest from uh, um, US EPA, uh, because in fact, uh, it's... It, it would be easy to say that Wallaceburg could be found uh, uh, in quite a large part of the USA. It was uh, uh, it was chosen as the research place because it was at the median of all of the questionnaire studies that had preceded this big field study. Okay, so you had a questionnaire prior and then determined yeah, to go to Wallaceburg. Canada. Uh, Health Canada went uh, did a rather massive questionnaire study across the country, and um, I think it was twenty. I'm not sure, but I think it was twenty different cities, and and Wallaceburg kind of was sitting there at the median. So we thought if we studied in Wallaceburg, we would actually have um, not an extreme old, but but a median response for for uh, the actual field re research. Now, how did your could you explain a little bit about what Health Canada is and um, how your two groups work together or if they work together at all? Yeah, well, Health Canada is actually a department of the federal government, and its job is to um, do the research and the uh, sort of uh, release of information and even some actual control of, of what companies are allowed to do uh, with regard to the health of, uh, of Canadians. So it's, it's a, a full-fledged government department. And we worked with them, and also we had somebody who was then at Agriculture Canada because he was the uh, best Canadian uh, educated and known person for um, the effect of dangerous molds on health. And, and it was uh, 
um, Dr. Uh, David uh, J. David Miller and Dr. Bob Dales, from, uh, who was re- sort of uh, reporting on behalf of, of Health Canada, and, and myself designed the study in the field. Um, so, yeah, we had uh, one uh, Crown Corporation, one federal housing or, or health agency, and um, another federal agency that was uh, had expertise on mold because they uh, looked at mold in agriculture. Jim, we've, uh, by the way, uh, for those listening in, we have had Dr. Miller on the show, and it, it was a fantastic show, so um, I would highly recommend going to the archives and checking out that past show when he um, he came on with Don Weeks, who's another uh, Canadian, uh, and they were co-editors. There's one other, I think, Mr. Prezant, uh, of the new AIHA Green Book uh, Recognition Evaluation on and control of mold in indoor environments, I'm pretty sure it's called. So I thought I'd let people know that. The other question I had, Jim, for you is, over the years, I know you've followed these issues real closely uh, since Wallaceburg, and do you have an opinion on whether you think it's um, the mold or um, the mycotoxins or the beta-glucans or the other bacterial components that we find in damp buildings or the insects or some synergy of all the above that causes these health issues? Um, well, in most cases, of course, the body doesn't get into serious trouble until it's been uh, assaulted by more than one thing. Uh, the body is really rather efficient at dealing with one thing at a time. We measured uh, in, uh, we met, did many measures, actually. We we sampled the uh, host dust from the living room and from the child's bedroom and from the child's bed. And uh, we um, also did uh, short-term uh, um, air samples. And then we did long-term air dust samples in the living room and the, and the bedroom. And we analyzed them um, for um, bacterial toxins. Um, and for just about everything that we could learn about molds, um, we actually had a, a, a one of the researchers uh, um, d- help develop whole new mold analysis techniques, and, and uh, we actually were interested in each and every mold that we could find in those various samples. And uh, what we were able to prove is that there was no real significant connection between any of the bacterial things that we measured and the health effects. Uh, we looked at uh, dust mite and uh, I guess cat allergens uh, pretty extensively. They had a signal, but it was fairly small. But the mold, um, David Miller uh, came up with a way of, uh, of basically characterizing mold so that both its toxigenic and its allergenic uh, response would be taken care of, and, and it, it just simply just stood out very, very powerfully as uh, moldy houses did make the children sick, and we did questionnaire work on the adults, and it made them ill. Again, both of those were quite strongly statistically significant. But um, uh, ongoing work out in Prince Edward Island is looking at babies and health and, and mold, but... Uh, 
I don't have those results because that I got that study started before I retired and then uh, have not been in the loop. But primarily it was mold. And um, Dr. Dales and Dr. Um, Miller told me that given the virtual lack of difference between um, children with asthma and children without asthma in the way that they responded, um, that it was likely not an allergenic response. It was likely a toxigenic response. And they've done further work on that. And, of course, David Miller is now known around the world by the other microbiologists, and especially those that specialize on, in mold effects, uh, that he's quite likely the, the, the best of the dangerous mold experts. So he's been doing a lot of work, and I always tell people if David says something about mold, um, it's best to assume he's right, even if you have to completely change your position on it, because it <laughs> tends not to be wrong. Okay. Cliff? Um, Jim, um, I'd like to talk about history and, you know, what mistakes have been made, you know, that affect the indoor air quality of, of buildings in, you know, what mistakes have been made in the past, um, you know, that should not be made again? Oh, my goodness. There are quite a large number of them. I mean, one of the reasons I, I went to CMHC is I got convinced by talking to the experts there that maybe we didn't even know what questions to ask as far as health and housing. Uh, remember, CMHC has got a housing mandate. Uh, Public Works Canada has got a, a large buildings uh, mandate. Um, and we work with them uh, informally for quite a long while, too. But basically, for housing, um, we, we learned a number of things and, and have tried very hard to... Uh, to implement them into our building codes. For one thing, non-mechanical ventilation, passive ventilation. Um, we tried very, very hard for more than 12 years to fund any reasonable study that would prove that passive ventilation actually was adequate. It, it, it produced a, a, an acceptable minimum ventilation rate, but didn't produce an oh-my-God ventilation rate when it was cold and windy or when it was hot and windy outdoors. And um, we convinced ourselves that that wasn't ever going to work. And uh, I, I sent you a link uh, for a study that went back. Uh, we've done this several times. or see, I say we still. CMHC has <laughs> done this many times um, and proved that, you know, it's not unusual in a house that, if you were to not mechanically ventilate it, to get hundreds if not thousands of hours where in a year where the ventilation rate didn't come anywhere near 0.3 air changes an hour um, when averaged over a reasonable length of time. So, but, so that means that, you know, um, you could have air change rates way, way less than that for significant numbers of hours. I, I think the last study that was just done years ago showed that in the Ottawa area, about 1,900 hours a year out of the roughly a little less than 8,800 hours in a year, um, you would actually not achieve adequate ventilation without a mechanical ventilation system. So that's one of the big problems. We really wanted passive systems to work 
across the country, and, and they do in windy locations, but not generally. And uh, the other thing is that we had to come to grips with the fact that we knew very, very little about the material emissions from not only the things that we build our houses with, but by the occupants and especially the furniture. Uh, the World Health Organization has now said that formaldehyde is a known human carcinogen. Um, and, of course, some of the things we build houses with and, and especially build furniture with. And, well, even, it's even in our dryer sheets is formaldehyde. So uh, we're going to have to start to take that much more seriously than we ever did. But uh, we just didn't realize... And some of the standards on formaldehyde emissions, by the way, are written so as to hide the fact that um, formaldehyde emissions can be pretty atrocious in, in a poorly ventilated house. Jim, So that's two of the things. Okay. Well, we've got plenty of time, and I'd like to go into some more. We're going to come up on halftime. But before we do, I want to make sure that all the listeners, and even myself, are defining these terms you're using the same way. When you say passive ventilation, uh, exactly what do you mean by passive ventilation? Well, something that um, does not require a motor fan set to, to drive it, um, that could be uh, uh, openings that uh, maybe had to be adjusted so that uh, you could both let air in from a safe place and let air out from a safe place. Uh, one of the things we proved that the air coming through leaks and cracks was pretty badly contaminated. Uh, so that's not the type of passive we're talking about, but basically something that doesn't require electricity to, to drive it. So some type of hole in the wall with maybe a damper on it and then uh, allowing fresh air to come in from the outside. Yeah, of course, of course, ventilation systems always have to have both an inlet and uh, an exhaust. Uh, otherwise, basically, um, well, you can prove this fairly easily. You can have a hole in the bottom of a jar, turn it upside down, and the air doesn't mix uh, with the room air when, when you do that. Um, so one great big hole does not a ventilation system make. So we need one on, say, each end of the home, and that would be some of the thoughts. Usually one high, one low, one of them in the uh, downwind side high, say, and one of them in the windward side low. Uh, but the trouble is the darn wind insists on changing direction, so that makes life interesting. <laughs> Jim, we're going to go to our uh, halftime segment, and we'll bring you back in just a moment. Very good. Okay. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Now thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at 
ieconnections.com. Dry's Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Leader of men and women. Mr. Glenn Fellman, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you and Cliff today? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. Hey, what's news? Oh, congrats on your convention. Heard good things about it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'll lead off with that. The Indoor Air Quality Association had a great annual meeting and exposition that just uh, concluded on Tuesday this week. IAQA welcomed over 600 people to Tampa, Florida. Its partner in the Indoor Air Expo welcomed uh, a a few more than that. And with walk-ins and uh, show-onlys, somewhere in the neighborhood between about 1,500 and 2,000 people uh, were foot traffic at the Indoor Air Expo. Uh, where there were 280 booths and 184 exhibitors. It was a great conference for a lot of reasons, but for me, one of the most important reasons why it was a great conference is because it showed me signs of economic recovery within our industry. People are investing in attending trade shows. Uh, they're, they're talking to vendors about making capital investments, and I, I'm, I'm seeing good things. So. Uh, if if we are at the beginning of a true recovery, I think I saw the first signs of it, uh, first tangible signs of it, just this week at Tampa, Florida. Well, let's hope you're right there, Glenn. What else is news this week? Well, I'm going to focus most of my time today talking about one specific issue because it's been something we've we've heard about and been talking about for a long time. It's the Florida mold licensing law. As uh, people will remember, the law uh, was passed uh, last year, but There are a lot of questions about it, a lot of unknowns. They did stakeholder meetings with the Department of Business and Professional Regulations. And then throughout uh, most of the fall, uh, it was real quiet. Well, things picked up quick in March. Um, Actually, I should say uh, really at the end of January, it moved through some committees. But, man, it picked up in March. Since March 1st, the, uh, the, the regulations has moved through the Insurance Business and Financial Affairs Policy Committee. It's gone through the Government Operations Appropriations Committee, the General Government Policy Council Committee. Uh, it got bounced back to the Government Operations Appropriations Committee, and that's where it stands. And I believe that is the last committee it will have to go through uh, before we see a true regulation in place. So now I've got some details on some things we've been wondering about. Of course, this is all subject to change. I'll talk about that in a minute. But let me tell you what we know. We know for sure that there will be a state exam, a state-administered exam. 
there may also be uh, an allowance for people to take voluntary exams that would qualify them in lieu of the state exam, but that's not certain. We do know the state will test. We know that you'll have to have a two-year associate degree or equivalent with at least 30 semester hours uh, in mycology or microbiology, engineering, uh, and kind of related things. So there's going to be some education uh, uh, backgrounds there for sure. Is that for the assessment side or the contractor side or both, Glenn? Both. 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 Interesting. Okay. Yep. Uh, We know that you're going to have to be fingerprinted and go through a criminal background check before you get your license. Yeah, how about that? Mm -hmm. Uh, That that may put some people into trouble. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We know what the grandfathering rules say as of today, and it could change. But here's what you got. Uh, If you are certified by a state or national association that requires successful completion of a proctored exam, for certification, and you have completed at least 60 hours of verifiable education for an assessor or 30 hours for a mediator, or in lieu of that, if you can demonstrate three years minimum experience as an assessor or a mediator, which you would do by sending 40 invoices for assessment or remediation services at the time of application, you can be grandfathered. Hmm. Um, So there you go. In addition to one of the foregoing, grandfather applicants must not have had a mold uh, license revoked uh, from a different state in the past five years uh, or any other kind of license revoked by the state of Florida or fine assessed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the bill authorizes DBPR to investigate the validity of invoices that were take, uh, submitted and to take disciplinary action for, fi- for filing false information. Uh, grandfathers must comply with all of those things and so forth and so on. Now, here's some, some, some key, ish, key items. Grandfather applications must be postmarked no later than March 1st, 2011. So there's a year from now. There's plenty of time. Okay. And here's something more. The bill prohibits unlicensed activity enforcement until July 1st, 2011. So in other words... Even if somebody is operating without a license or without meeting the requirements of the law, there will be no enforcement until July of 2011. So that's some, that's some, some concrete information that people have been begging for. Uh, it's finally up. If you go to the uh, Florida DPR website, you can find it there. Uh, just for your convenience, it's myfloridahouse.gov. And you'll have to kind of hunt and peck your way from there. But uh, if you need help, give me a call, or else maybe I can send you the link for IAQ Radio. We appreciate that, Glenn. We've got, by the way, we're, uh, one of our Florida listeners, uh, John Lapateri, is working on uh, getting the, I believe, the senator or the, the House oh. member that uh, sponsored the bill on the show. So we're hoping we can do that. I yep. think they want to wait until it gets all the way through all the committees first. So we'll definitely well, that's be reporting. Well, that will be a good thing to do, and let me tell you why. Because just this morning there, I found that there is all of a sudden a huge push from the home inspection and home builder and related fields to try to change what's happening. Hmm. Now, the same bill, the exact same bill that would regulate mold assessors and remediators also – regulates home inspectors. And I'm seeing a huge lobbying effort. I don't know who's behind it. I don't know if it's an association, if it's a private company. 
uh, I don't know who's behind it, but suddenly emails are flying right to your congressman, all that kind of stuff. And it just started hitting my desk this week. So there's a major lobbying effort going on at the very last minute to try to squash or change this thing. Who knows whether it will be successful or not, but I would say this. If you listen to everything I just said, don't quote me a week from now because it could be different. <laughs> All right, Glenn. So, and I'll tell you what I'll do is, is the next available time you have for me to come on the show, whether it's next week or the following week, I'll come back and I'll report whether anything else has changed on this. One final item I just wanted to mention is I want to wish good luck this month to the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, the Restoration Industry Association, the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council, and the Environmental Information Association. All four groups are holding their annual meetings in March, uh, which is, uh, uh, pre presents great opportunities for education. Uh, I think they're all still accepting registrations, so if you're out there and you need some continuing education or you just want to go to a great event, uh, all four organizations do a great job. So those are some things on the calendar, and I just wanted to wish them success. Well, thanks, Glenn. Uh, hope, hopefully we can get you back in two weeks with an update. Sounds great. All right. We'll bring you back for the roundup, too, if you have any questions for Jim. I know you just uh, prompted a few for me. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. Jim, uh, Jim, do we have you back on the line? Yeah. Okay. Jim, I, I don't know. I'm sure you were able to hear a lot of that. And we have some questions that were texted in, by the way, and I will uh, make sure we get to those listeners. Before we do, I want to They go back to the ventilation issue. Jim, it seems as though in, in Canada you're, you're doing this uh, and have been doing this kind of not licensing but um, approval or authorization, I don't know what you call it, of uh, people who do indoor air quality and mold investigations a lot differently than we have in the U.S. What is this? Uh, in your intro it says that you're one of the first IAQ mold problem investigators in uh, Eastern Ontario, recognized by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Canadian Federal Housing Agent, that is the Canadian Federal Housing Agency, I guess, as qualified to perform these services. How does it work in, in Canada? And um, do you think we're kind of crazy for doing this state by state down here the way we are? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um... Yeah, that's a, a beautiful question. Um, by the way, I absolutely love to be controversial, so I say that doing it state by state is madness. Uh, but then again, um, since I'm included uh, or accused of being um, certifiable, maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> you should take that into account when you take my com comment. Um, CMHC has has this huge background of uh, research into uh, health and housing, not just mold, but but certainly um, there's many cases where we believe that moisture problems are much more complicated than mold itself, and maybe it's actually the combination that's bad. So, you know, if you don't solve the moisture problem, um, you certainly haven't solved the health problem. But, um, no, CMHC actually runs training courses uh, throughout the year, um, to train uh, indoor air quality investigators who meet certain standards. They have to have a, a basic, uh, or fairly good, actually, if you, your idea of basic is, is pretty good and solid, uh, understanding of how houses are built and, and how they should work. But then they get uh, several days 
training and go on to an apprenticeship program where they have to do four reports that are very carefully reviewed. The first one somewhat gently, but the last one brutally. Um, does it meet the intent of the uh, investigator uh, program to provide, uh, A, was the, the investigation properly done, and B, was the report clearly written so that, in fact, the householder knows what's wrong, uh, what they have to do, and why they have to do it. And uh, so this has been going on for quite a few years now, and there are several dozen fully qualified, uh, actually, I guess about, I think it's, uh, don't quote me as this is totally accurate, but only about one in three people who take the course ever actually come out through the far end of having done four successful uh, uh, evaluations and got passed on them. But uh, in, in spite of the fact that there's several dozen investigators across the country who are qualified to do this, but CMHC has uh, not uh, obtained the funding and or whatever else is necessary to effectively communicate to Canadians that these investigators do exist. So some of them actually went through all of the process and um, uh, people don't know that they should be calling in a qualified investigator to say what's wrong what do you have to do to fix it, uh, and why is that important sort of thing. There was a text question or comment that came in, and I, I just want to run this by you, Jim, see what your thoughts are. It says, isn't the whole idea that indoor air in tighter buildings benefits from ventilation, but that active schemes using reheat or recovery are costly? Any comment on that? Oh, boy. Um, yeah heard that many times. Remember that we tried for well over a decade to prove that passive systems uh, provided enough ventilation at the least sort of temperature difference in wind conditions, but also didn't uh, uh, make the house unlivable at the, at the cold and windy or hot and, and windy condition. Um, first, the first Thing you always want to do to make a house a healthy home is reduce the emissions, re remove the, to the extent that you can do so, the source of contaminants, and then you want to ventilate. And uh, it, it, people totally underestimate how inexpensive this really is, uh, given today's and cer certainly future energy prices. It, uh, it really only takes about between three and five watts of flow power to uh, bring air into the house and exhaust uh, stale air. Um, we're using very inefficient motor fan sets at the moment, even heat recovery ventilators, um, so that you know many of them use 100, 120 watts uh, to, to deliver three, which is certainly improvable, upon-able. But, um, and, and many of them require that you run the furnace uh, fan. Now, if you're running the furnace fan continuously on low speed with an old technology motor fan set, it's most likely using 350, 400 watts, like the one used to in, in our old farmhouse. And our new furnace, which is uh, a Lennox and uh, has a, a really good um, DC motor and, and control system on it, uses 85 watts. Uh, on continuous low speed, 
um, and that you know can be used to to uh, um, pick up stale air from around the house and exhaust it and bring fresh air in and and, and distribute it throughout the house. So um, the trouble is that uh, the the real wattage required for low speed uh, circulation of air through a ducting system is in the order of all 10 to 15 watts, and so something that's using 85 is still not terribly efficient. Uh, but but our old unit was using uh, fairly close to 425 watts at low speed, um, so that was pretty atrocious to to deliver what was most likely in the order of 10 watts of uh, circulation flow flow uh, power throughout the, the house. And the other thing is, I did some of the the work with some of my many, many uh, clients where I told them that they should upgrade, that if you're air conditioning, you can save enough electrical energy uh, from the air conditioner by just saving the cool uh, when you use a heat recovery ventilator to run the motor fan set in the HRV um, all year long. Hmm. So uh, since you then save heating, um, yeah, it costs money up front, but it sure as heck uh, is is a cash machine after the first few years. Okay, Cliff. Yeah, what I'm going to do is actually reword a uh, a, a text question uh, mm-hmm. that 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 we just received. Uh, Jim, our our homes are made out of a wide range of materials: glass and wood, and metals and brick and and plastic, etc. And every one of these materials has a different lifespan and has different expansion and contraction, uh, you know, characteristics. And, you know, once we buy the home as a homeowner or building manager, I mean, there's certain maintenance that's going to be required for that, which we may defer. You know, I don't want to get a ladder and go up on the roof because I'm afraid of heights or or whatever. It Mm -hmm. seems that contractors get blamed for everything. And, you know, could you comment on that? I mean, is it always the contractor's fault or uh, you know, or, or some other people uh, have some shared responsibility for for what, Cliff? For having uh, the original you know, construction. Well, for the having sorry for having uh, you know water intrusion into houses. Well, unfortunately, uh, water intrusion is often part of a new home construction. Uh, process because, in fact, we don't adequately design the external surfaces in such a way as to shed a vast, vast majority of the, say, wind-driven rain, or we have locations where wind-driven fine snow does some other interesting things, too. Um, So, uh, and then we put uh, some caulking, which is uh, chosen because it's the cheapest available that appears to do the job and will last as long as the warranty period for such things, which is one year in Canada, and uh, and expect that, in fact, that uh, it's going to work. Um, certainly, the, the whole idea of the rain screen drain scheme for siding and walls and, and proper installation of flashings for windows and doors, etc., um, should be done properly, but you often see, for instance, the openings at the bottom around windows and doors cocked shut, whereas they're designed to work by collecting water that that gets uh, into the window or the door 
one way or the other and, and lead it directly back outdoors again. So if you, if you get such clever people uh, when they're building the houses to cock all those shut, um, you can get some rather interesting failures. But, uh, <laughs> the design isn't good enough, um, in my opinion. Uh, our codes and standards to builders associations say that they're, they're way too demanding. In other words, they actually are coming out of their gross profit, uh, so that's a bad thing. Um, but in my opinion, there are still many areas where we build lousy houses in the first place, and uh, um, the contractor actually, uh, the builder, uh, more or less met code, but the code wasn't good enough. And the code's a minimum standard, so... Um, oh, it's a minimum standard. There's nothing wrong with building better. Um, and making sure CMHC has some wonderful um, training courses available um, for a price um, <laughs> that really show you how to do just about every uh, uh, device in the house. And, of course, they have this marvelous book called Canadian Wood Frame House Construction, uh, which gets upgraded on a regular basis. And it even has some healthy home uh, special sheets in it these days. But it shows you how to do just about everything properly. But interestingly enough, the building codes don't uh, necessarily require that you, you build well, only that you build to the minimum standard. Now, Jim, I'm curious. Um, you've been writing these, uh, putting these publications together, doing this research for years. Have you seen improvements in new construction in Canada over that 20 or 30 year span now? Quite a few things are done much better now than they used to be. Uh, it was only 10 years ago, roughly, that um, that the requirement for an air barrier come into houses at all. We had uh, these decades and decades of requirements for vapor, uh, and they called them barriers, and they shouldn't ever be barriers. They should only be retarders. Joe Stebrick uh, with Auger Building Science Corporation was one of my original contractors when we were looking at moisture problems in houses. Um, and, and the many of our houses are much better in certain details, but some of them are still very badly built, um, partly because the municipalities have backed off on the amount of time that they give a house inspector to inspect the house at various stages to make sure that it does meet the code. And but they are better, I think. Certainly we found in, uh, in the Wallaceburg study that we had bad houses in the old houses, we had bad houses in the moderate-age houses, and we had bad houses in the new houses, but the moderate-age houses were the worst. The moderate-age? You know, built in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And why do you that think? There's a bad period of time here in Canada. A uh, big housing boom. Um, municipalities cutting back left, right, and sideways on the uh, on the expense brackets uh, to the municipality of a of an inspector and, and the homeowner not realizing that he basically had an uninspected home. Jim, I've got a list of questions, and and we're running low on time. Let me get to one yeah. that. Um, you know, and I hope I can get you back here. We're, we'll talk after the oh, show. 
I'll come back at the drop of a shoe. Okay. All right. Okay. Then uh, we'd, we'd love to have you next week if you can do it because I haven't scheduled yep. anything yet. All right. Let's do that. But before we do, let's go to, then let's go to our roundup where we do one last question from Cliff, myself, and Glenn Fellman. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right. Let's go back to Glenn Feldman first. And Glenn, did did you have any final questions or comments for Jim? I have a question for Jim. I, I, I don't know if it's one you'll be able to readily answer, but I'll give it a shot. I spent some time poking around the uh, CMHC website and looking at some of the news releases. And it appears that the majority of the news releases uh, for 2009 and certainly for 2010 have to do with the strength or lack thereof of the housing market in Canada and government programs to strengthen the housing market. And, uh, and, and it looks as if you, as you follow through 2009 and in 2010, the um, reports get better and more and more optimistic. Being an American uh, living in Canada, I just wanted to know, um, I think the listeners would be interested to know, you know, how's the market for housing compared to that in the U.S. in terms of foreclosures and abandoned properties? Because ultimately, IAQ radio listeners are going to end up cleaning those messes up before somebody moves back in. That's a great question, Jim. Yeah. Um, well, of course, I'm not an, an, an expert in this area, but but uh, CMHC provides absolutely top-notch housing market information, uh, and on a fairly frequent basis. And, and in fact. Uh, Many of the TV programs, actually, and radio programs, bring people in from CMHC to comment on housing markets. Uh, it's Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, so the uh, the research, actually, uh, in many cases, is is a small fraction of, of the total of CMHC. We never did have the uh, the big crunch that you had in in the states. Our banks are. Uh, are much more tightly regulated, uh, and and they didn't get into as deep a problem. Although in fact they had gone in to some of the almost Ponzi schemes uh, as a fraction of their portfolios. So, yeah, we had a minor um, bump, uh, but uh, just this last uh, couple of months here in Canada, the housing market is uh, is just taking off something wicked. Okay. Cliff? Um, Jim, I was wondering if you could tell us a story that would help people remember an important IAQ or building science principle. Yeah, okay. On, on many, many cases, uh, people say, why in the heck do you want to crawl up into my attic? And I, I, um, I go into a house and people say, you know, every time I turn on the air conditioner, um, my house stinks of mold, and I've had them in, and they've cleaned the ducts, and they've cleaned the A-coil and everything else, and uh, why in the world uh, can't they? I mean, are these guys just totally incompetent, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, here I am coming in in the middle of the winter, and, and so I, one of the things I absolutely insist on doing is I, I take uh, an ethical investigation. I'll take 
quite quite often over 200 photographs, and then when I get home, study them carefully. But when I look around in the attic in these houses where people are complaining about a mold uh, problem in the uh, in, in the, the air conditioning season, um, I find uh, that air leaks have allowed enormous amounts of both uh, moisture and dust up into the attic during the heating season um, when the house acts like a chimney and, and so it sucks in at the bottom and exhausts at the top and of course that's into the attic. And then along comes the air conditioning season and it's now colder in the house than it is uh, outside. So the natural uh, stack effect reverses and the house breathes from the attic into the house and out and, and of course downwind when there's wind. Um, so if you insist on, uh, I tell them that if you insist on uh, giving your attic lots of moisture and lots of of dust, and uh, somebody forgot to put in the uh, soffit vent chutes to make sure that all of those holes in the soffits actually do let air in and out through the exhaust uh, openings in the top of the roof, uh, why are you surprised when uh, Mother Nature takes dust and, uh, well, I guess house construction materials and, and lots of moisture and turns it into mold and bacteria and, and lots and lots of bugs and etc. Um, it's just the way houses work. And, uh, remember that a, a really tight ceiling um, is a health requirement uh, in most houses, and that's why I'm so happy we don't put our ducting up in our attics uh, ever. I think we could almost say uh, there's always exceptions. Is uh, that and insist on on putting the uh, HVAC ducting in the in in the attic and and uh, it has to be torn out. <laughs> is that code or is that something that builders have just learned over time? Don't put it in the attic. I honestly don't know, but but basically, there's there. Are, although there are parts of of Ontario that are south of Northern California, um, something most people don't know. Um, most of our houses see nasty enough weather that you just could never put make ducting airtight enough and well enough insulated. So I don't know whether it's not code allowable. It, it might be code allowable as long as you did an unbelievable job of tightening the ducting and insulating it, uh, you know, up to R40 <laughs> or whatever. Okay. And, you know, Jim, we, we've got so many things to cover. I, we just had some nice comments in from listeners, um, you know, about the energy efficiency and energy savings. We're going to talk more about that next week with you. I really want to make sure the listeners are aware of the uh, – the tremendous resources and especially the about your home series i got stuck on there for about two hours last night uh, you have one on log homes that just fascinated me because i happen to be in one you have one on burning fire um you know how to how to heat your home with wood which i happen to do so i was fascinated by that one you've got them on they have them i guess i shouldn't say you but i know you were a big part of it on just about everything but before we go is there anything you'd like to add this week before we close it out for this week and then uh, bring you back next week well one of the big things is people are always talking about the trade-off between uh energy savings and uh, air quality. In reality, to have really good 
not just moderately good, but really good air quality in a house. You really need an energy-efficient, airtight house with good mechanical ventilation. Uh, we didn't want that to be the uh, decision that we came to uh, when we started the research, but, but basically uh, that is the requirement, that a, a high-quality, healthy home is likely going to be very energy-efficient because you just let go of what you hoped the world was like and accepted the, what it really is like. Uh, you need a tight home with a good ventilation system and it costs you less, uh, most likely less than a five-year payback on the HRV or, or much less than five years. Uh, but a tight home, an energy-efficient home uh, can be a healthy home as long as you do things right. Excellent. Well, Jim, we appreciate you joining us this uh, week, and we look forward to uh, part two next week with Jim White of System Science Consulting, formerly with the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation, Canada Mortgage. I'll get it right, Jim. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us this week and look forward to next week. Be before we go, I want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. I, I like working with you, Chad. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Environmental and Koalecki, you're hanging in there at the controls. We appreciate that. Mr. Glenn Fellman for joining us for the IE Connections What's News. Um, next week, we'll also have a, a new sponsor to announce. And uh, we're also going to try and focus a little more on water damage restoration and fire. Believe it or not, CMHC has documents on that as well. We'll, so, talk, about uh, next week. we'll talk about that next week. But until then, most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. And by the way, Dr. Dieter will be back next week. He also said to say hello from uh, an airport in Milwaukee to the group of listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.